Well, welcome everybody to Bigfoot Backpacker. Here we are for another episode, and we've got a guest today that, wow, we, uh, we're going to call him the Renaissance Man. He does lots of outdoor activities, has lots of incredible insights to some things that are important to everybody. So he's going to shed some light on some things that he's done in his life and is currently doing. His name is Mike, and uh, we're excited to have him here today. It's going to be a little bit of here, a little bit of there, and of course he's had a, a Bigfoot uh, encounter. Um, not the kind that you're dealing with him face-to-face so much, but something similar to what I had, it sounds like. So we're going to get the first-hand take on that, too. So let's uh, let's uh, welcome Mike to the show with Bigfoot Backpacker. Mike, are you out there listening? Hey, Dan. Nice to meet you. Thank you for uh, having me on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time this morning. I know you're kind of a busy guy and even have your nights kind of filled up. So thanks for taking the time today. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and uh, some of your favorite activities, some of your outdoor passions. And then uh, we'll get to our, our Big Fit discussion here in a little bit. But I know you have so much going on that uh, I absolutely want to hear what, what you've been doing. Tell us about yourself a little bit. Um, okay, well, I'll start at the beginning. Uh, well, towards the beginning, anyway. Um, sure. I've been an outdoor person my whole life. Started with scouts and that kind of thing. Um, when you know, Boy Scouts, and uh, I'm here in Connecticut, so one of the you know not so much of the the woodland vast areas you know we have out west or where you think you'd see a, a bigfoot. So you know, I never expected in my life to actually ever encounter, which has kind of brought me into a a weird algorithm that I have put together my interests. Um, you know, I like like so many other guests that I've heard. You know, my my interest started with the Leonard Nimoy Nova and in search of that kind of thing. And uh, you know, my my father had a, a couple of uh those books laying around and I paused through those as a kid and really kinda had an interest in, in kind of the abnormal, paranormal, you know, mystery mysterious. So that, you know, always piqued my interest. And um, you know, growing up always in the outdoors i was you know you and me are near the same age and you know when we were kids you lived outside that's how it was and uh you know the being in somewhat suburbia you know i had woods in the backyard and spent every day and all my days out there um but uh you know after high school kind of thing i've uh you know really got into backpacking and hiking um you know I've, i've loved hiked through connecticut on the at um, I've been to a lot of the spots that are around here, Massachusetts, New York, you know, the Bear Mountain, the Green Stake, and a lot of those those really cool kind of legacy areas that are around here to do. Um, I started, I've always been a loved with the water and canoeing, and I got into kayaking pretty good. And uh, one of my, my interests in general is building and fabricating. So I started uh, looking into building my own kayaks and uh, what that brought me to was, uh, we have, a a uh, the Maritime Center here in Connecticut, it's in Norwalk, and they had a boat building, kayak building area, and I learned building skin-on-frame kayaks, and that really was one of the most pivotal moments in, in a lot of my outdoor life. Um, once I delved into the traditional style of Inuit skin-on-frame kayaks, really brought me into the, the outdoors even more. Um, that I could build my own kayak and I could be out here. Um, I actually delved into that really deeply. I'm uh, one of the very few, there's only like five Inuit-style, Greenland-style instructors in the state, five or six of us, you know, that, that are around here. And, um, you know, it's not a very common 
style of, of paddling. I so I've been a canoe and kayak instructor um, and guide throughout uh, most of the Fairfield County lower area Long Island Sound, and uh, that was one of my really really dull moments that made me even more into backpacking and more into to cycling and really was one of the catalysts that got me into being outdoors, just being on the water that, you know, I could get out on a boat for 20 minutes. And it was like a 20 minute vacation. I could do it almost every day. And it works with the fact that I have a passion for fishing. So that was really a, a full circle. That was always something I always wanted to do. And actually I, uh, Oh gosh, I don't know, probably 30 years ago, 25 years ago, I decided to take kayak lessons because I thought, oh, my gosh, this has got to be as close as I can possibly come to actually almost being a fish when you actually get in the in the crazy water. And I, I did like it, and I went on some trips. It's just not one of those things that really sunk into me because it was tough. I mean, it, it's tough, but at the same time, I mean, it's learnable, and it's an experience that was, was fantastic for me, but I'm certainly not into it as much as you are. But I, I still love the, the passion of it because it, it's just so wild. And it's fascinating to me that you're building these things and you're building it out of using, you know, traditional skins and that sort of thing. What what kind of a process is that? How long does that take? Well, it kind of depends on what we do. I mean, I can build a, a skin on frame, which I can do almost out of scrap, scrap lumber. I mean, it's, you know, that's, and that's the traditional way that it would be done out of driftwood. Um, I can make one fairly quickly with power tools and, and plans that I have. Um, I did because the my mindset and kind of the eclectic world that I live in my brain. Um, I built one completely without power tools. So just from bare wood and a handful of, of fairly rustic style tools, a couple of saws and knives and that kind of thing. And I was able to build one. It took me, oh, I don't know, about six months. And actually I had a motorcycle crash in the middle of it. So that kind of hampered the building of that. And oddly enough, I have friends who were kind enough to, make me my own workbench and my own special seat so I could continue to work on my my kayak while I was uh, recovering from my motorcycle accident. But I built that kayak in about six months or so, and it had – there's no screws. There's no fasteners. Everything is hand-drilled and pegged and lashed. Um, we use – so we make a, a, a wooden frame, and then uh, we cover it in canvas because, um, you know, seal skin's kind of frowned upon. But – uh you use canvas and you paint over it and it's uh, flexible, you know, almost like a, a living kind of, kind of boat that, it, that moves with you and it's your whole body, um, which is a very different experience to paddle a skin on frame boat in the native style. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that one of the great things about it is, is doing these things. And most people who have an interest in, in our native people will tell you that, you know, there's, there's these reaches, these fingerlings that, you know, you have to touch and you have a better understanding in, of of the, our world in general, just as the Native people have brought us. So, you know, that brought me a huge interest into our Native peoples, you know, mostly more of our Arctic or even Northern uh, Canadian uh, and North, North New England residents who would be our Native people. Um, there's such a different lifestyle than what we traditionally see as the, you know, Western Native so, uh, but that, that's where that all started. Like, you know, so now I, I have this slightly, I said kayaking was really that piece that brought me closer to, to that almost, uh, homeopathic. It really changed my life, made me healthier. Um, you know, maybe even think a little more about how I eat and, you know, that natural 
natural concepts. Um, it was really, you know, and especially like I said, doing it without tent, without power tools and, uh, having to deal with all the small little bits that, that make the, you know, devils in the details kind of area. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. It's, uh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Working with your hands without power tools. I mean, you, you're putting so much of yourself into the project. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I mean, what's that memory worth? I mean, you can't just, you know, go to Cabela's and, and buy a kayak and have that exact same felt involvement psychologically. And so that's a, that's a big, big thing. And so that's, that's fascinating. Um, it's, it's, the boat has a soul. It's, it's ever, ever, in the backpacking world, have you ever backpacking gone out in either moccasins or something or barefoot maybe or, or you know, real minimally? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of that, that closeness to the earth kind of concept where things are a little, little tighter in, in your understanding. Sure. Absolutely. So yeah, that, uh, that, uh, that's fantastic. And I think more and more people, you know, are, are venturing out and trying to learn these kind of new things. So I think that's good for individuals and it's good for, the world just just in general because you become more in tune and you become certainly more aware of the importance of our wilderness, our forests, our parks, our our land, and so that's good for everybody. That's that's fantastic. Good for you. How many how many boats or kayaks or canoes have you made? Uh, I've made about I think eleven. Oh wow! Wow! That I yeah, and and that's working with other people or, or you sure. know I I you know I have uh. I currently have three boats that are well. One of them's kind of busted up from time. They don't last very long. But I've made fiberglass boats. I've made uh, you know. I've worked on canoe projects and stuff. So wow, I have ten or eleven boats that I've kind of put my hands on that I've worked on. And I used to work with a uh, a guy who a good friend of mine. We worked on sailboats together, uh, doing race boats and maintenance and you know moving them from race to race. So kind of that working on boats kind of thing has been a small part of me sure. for a, a while. Wow. That's, that's look, basically a brand. You got a brand. <laughs> <laughs> You're building that many, right? Wow. That's well, massive. yeah. Well, oh, actually, one of my designs has actually now become a, uh, not a mass produced, but a, a commercial product that I helped with a, a boat builder and designed a, a, a boat that's, it's a fiberglass boat that's uh that's a kit you buy. And we made it so that it's, it emulates the style of the Greenland kayak. Okay. Wow. Is there uh, yeah, somebody can can come and see one of these in action? You guys, you go uh, to I don't, have a conventions or are there? Are there? There uh, is a convention in Delmarva, Maryland, of uh, Greenland paddlers, and they do some amazing. These guys are fantastic. You know, they if you because I was looking, I was working towards my competition. There's a rolling competition where you go underneath its paddle skills. And, uh, they, there's about 41 classifications of types of roles or recoveries right. that they do in the Inuit style. And, uh, they have a, it's a, they do competitions and Delmar is the one on the East Coast here. And, uh, some of these guys are just world renowned paddlers that you would, that, you know, if they were hunters back in the day, they would be those successful hunters. You know, they really have good, amazing control of their bodies. And some of them, uh, a lot of women do fantastic because they have such a lower sense of center of gravity. Some of the best recovery paddlers that I've ever seen are, are women. They're amazing. Right on. Gosh, and, how does somebody get into something like that? You know, I started on YouTube. I don't know. <laughs> it sounds kind of cheesy, but uh, I saw these people doing this on YouTube, and I said, I'll bet you I could teach myself to do that. And um, 
And I did. I taught myself to do it. And then I started reaching out and, and was able to teach other people. And to be under the water, to go from safety of on top of the water to bringing yourself underwater to feel comfortable and then then effectively bring yourself back up is is pretty wonderful experience. Um, I would sit underneath the water for, you know, as long as I could hold my breath, I would come up just enough to take a breath and then go back down. And it was also a form of meditation, um, and it, which, which worked out as I'm actually a practicing Buddhist as well. So it was really, really convenient to have this new form of, of underwater meditation, which is almost like being in the womb kind of thing. It was this really wonderful encapsulating uh, form of, of meditation to, to go underneath, hold my breath, you know, comfortably come up, cleansing breath, go back down. Um, and that actually was, I had, uh, just gotten my, my wife had, we had divorced. And that was one of the things that really was able to, to, to center me again, you know, going, it's, you know, the same cycle and people talk about it all the time that, you know, they, they have a traumatic event in life and they, they get out and they touch the earth a little bit and it really helps center them. Absolutely. No, I can fully understand that. Yeah. That's where, you know, I've been on the trail so much. Backpacking is my my biggest thing, obviously. And and uh, now I get exactly what you're talking about. And I think lots of people out there right now are understanding that exact same thing. You know, and for me, even if I'm not out there, if I'm talking about it, my mind goes into such a nice space. You know, everything makes sense. And so, yeah, I always encourage people, get out, get in the water, touch the earth, put your hands in the dirt, do whatever it takes just to kind of center yourself. So, no, that's good that uh, – that, uh, you know, you found you found an avenue to kind of deal with things, and uh, you know, keep yourself on the right path, on the right check and balance. Another yeah, thing, and you, like, go ahead. Okay. No, nope. Please, please, please. No, I was gonna say, just in the essence of time here, a little bit. I have to get to your your uh, your apiary experience, your your beekeeping, because that's such Actually, a part of our world. I was gonna go there right next. So my the, interesting the story that I. Uh, you know, my me and my wife had divorced, and one of the things I always wanted to do was become a beekeeper. Um, wow. From a very young age, I was at a fair, and uh, my father, and uh, watching this beekeeper do stuff, and he's like, "Well, this is a, a male bee. It's a drone. Doesn't have a stinger. Here, you can take it and hold it." He hands it to this girl. I was about six years old. She was about the same age, and it's he was wrong. It was it stung her. I just, you know, as a six year old boy, that's the funniest thing that can happen. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, here, hold this bee. She'll be fine. Blah. Wow. Yeah. Not, not my most mature moment, but again, I was like six or seven. Uh-huh. Um, so my wife, me, we divorced, um, and uh, I, I wanted to do this. So I went out and got some bees. There was a local guy here who actually is a pretty well-round. He, his name is Ed Weiss, and he pretty much is largely responsible for the the bringing of of hobby beekeeping really mainstream into into the United States, and. Um, I started beekeeping that, and because I'm also, a, like I said, I'm a builder, I had found this style of hive that's popular in Africa called a top bar hive. So it's a usually you see the stack of boxes, and this is more like a trough, mm-hmm. and it allows the bees to keep to keep their home naturally. So it's less invasive for them. Um, it's not a great cold weather application, so you know I've had some difficulties with that. But um, I, I kind of stuck my head into this to building these. And um, at you know, moving forward, as I did this, I became a mentor and a beekeeping instructor for a lot of people. Um, I'm actually a uh, contributing author to Beekeeping for Dummies with Howlin yeah. Black. Yeah, he's a he, he's he actually is a friend of the guy of Ed Weiss that I 
had started this, and he's a he works with him, so he was the author of Beekeeping for Dummies, and I was able to be a contributing author for the Top Bar Hive, and then he what his next book was uh, Building Beekeeping Equipment for Dummies, and uh, so and he published my hive, the hive that I designed. So it was you know this is how I got into this. So now that I'm a into the Top Bar portion, I mean it's almost like a, a, a cult. In some of the beekeeping circles, I had been talking with a woman from Eastern Kentucky named Tammy Horn. She does land reclamation um, with bees in Eastern Kentucky. So she has all these bees, beehives set up, all these apiaries on these mountain sites that they're doing coal mining. And I had talked with her for quite a, quite a while, and I went down to Eastern Kentucky to teach top bar hive building, and because um, the people at Lake of course. One of our um, poorer regions of our country, there, there's true poverty there, and um, the top bar hives can be built very, very inexpensively. So we went to, to Eastern Kentucky, and we went to several of her sites, and we talked about, you know, how we can implement this or that. And I was able to meet with several groups of people from Appalachia and, uh, and, and interact with them and talk beekeeping shop. And one of the things that really was kind of crazy, and, and I – I didn't I, I didn't have get a chance to talk to Tammy about this lately. But um when I was down there they're talking about, you know, maintaining your beehives and then guarding them from bears. And it was two separate events that, that I heard this. Um I remember one very clearly, but uh they was, Oh yeah, bears. Well, don't forget about the Kentucky Wild Man. And I was like, huh? And it spawned this small conversation that that, that they felt that the, some of the intrusions on the hives were more based on the wild man than bears. Okay. Um, some of these hives were invaded, but they weren't just randomly destroyed, that they were taken apart uh, crudely. But there was a difference between the way a bear destroys a hive and the way that the wild man had, had you know, purloined their, their honey and, their, and attacked their hives. And I didn't give it a whole lot of thought. I always had an interest, but I didn't really put the, the main part of my thought onto it. I was like, oh, cool. I like I like Bigfoot. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And I kind of brushed it off. And this is going back. My son was a baby, so we're going back like 12, 10, 10 years, you know, something quite a few years ago. Okay. Um, so that was where that really realmed in. Going forward, you know, I, I have more of an interest in, in in Bigfoot and that kind of thing. And I remember thinking to myself, why is – and I'm also kind of a nerd, and I, I love, uh, you know, rally hominids. I've always kind of been a nerd about that since I was about 12 or 13. I got – I stuck my head into a book about Australopithecus, and it's always kind of been a piece of, of my interest. So I'm going back, and I'm thinking, you know, where are these interactions coming from? And I kind of, you know, peeled back in my memory of where these – ardent behaviors that would allow sightings. And being a beekeeper, I found out that there's this thing called mad honey. I don't know if you're familiar with this at all. No, I'm not. Um, okay, mad so I'll leave you. Okay. Mad honey. Okay. So, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, a toxin called uh, granotoxin that's in it. So interestingly enough, and I and maybe, you know, and I, I'm not to, to, to plug the show, but, you know, uh, finding Bigfoot, is was a, was one of the places that I saw this every time or a lot of the times that they would talk about their sightings. It was ardent behavior, and then along with 
and they mentioned it several times, uh, these big patches of rhododendrons or azalea. Okay. And even in one of the, if there's a, there's more than one or two, uh, interviews with cast of the show, and in the background, like, like a background is rhododendrons. Okay. Like a vast amount of rhododendrons. And that's where Mad Honey comes from. It comes from rhododendrons and azaleas. Okay. There's about 700 species or so. And throughout the United States, I mean, it has a huge bloom area. Some of them will bloom all year long. You know, here in the Northeast, Zone 4, we only get, generally, we only get a couple of months. But even in our climate, we can get up to six months of bloom time from this. And rhododendron and azaleas are probably one of the most purchased suburban uh, shrub that you're going to find. Home Depot is loaded with them. Sure, sure. So now... The rhododendron and azalea is where the mad honey comes from. Bees are what they call flower monogamous. So if they find a type of flower, all the bees that are foraging for that go to one type of flower, come back to the hive, and they store it all together. If you look at a hive, you can see bands of different colors of honey. Honey is, you know, we often think of honey color, but the color of honey realms from, from you know, almost clear to the darkest of, you know, being a stout. And they all have different flavors. One of the areas of our world that mad honey is actually cultivated very seriously is in Nepal and Turkey. You know, Nepal, home of the Yeti. Oh, sure. Yeah, so, you know, it's this thing that, now what happens is, is that, uh, in, in the art, the, the, the odd behaviors that we're finding Bigfoot that would lead us to the sightings are kind of where I've stuck my, my nose in a little bit. Um, and it comes to do with what are the ingredients that would cause Bigfoot to be seen or, you know, have a little more inhibitions that are relaxed. And mad honey being one of them, it's a hallucinogen and it causes euphoria. Oh, and wow. Mostly, yeah, and, and very significantly. Um, they use it to poison people. It will cause diarrhea, will cause, you know, other things. But but euphoria and hallucinations are one of the, the main things. And in throughout the animal kingdom, it's odd that, most animals will, just like humans, will seek out euphoric substances. It's it's very, very common. And I remembered, and I actually heard of one not so far in the past, of Bigfoot sightings from a farmer where a Bigfoot is drinking from the tap silage of okay. of, of a silo. I don't know if you're familiar with silage either. Oh, yeah. Um, Certainly. Yes, as it ferments, it, you know, they have a tap at the bottom, and it, you know, and it can be, you know, 150 proof. So I, you know, there's more than one sightings of Bigfoot actually drinking from the tap of the silage. But we find that most animals will, you know, along with craving for saliness, uh ingredients, will pursue fairly aggressively euphoric uh, ingredients. And this can include a lot of stuff that we would find in the average garden, including things like the digoxin style where we have things like foxgloves. Um, and even foxgloves will cause uh, visual disturbances that cause some dis- euphorias in certain uh, dosages, mm-hmm. as much as you know metabolic and cardiac uh, cardiac dysrhythmias. But you know there there are these slew of botany aspects that cause euphorias, and that's one of the reasons when I heard your uh, your guest Matt talking that really you know he, well you know this is the same style that there's a large large stream of, of of available botan botanical ingredients that can cause this. And so I you know, looking into the mad honey and 
looking into some of the other things that can cause that and you know where would so when you're looking at bigfoot in those more suburban areas maybe that has something to do with it just change in behavior um there's another phenomenon um, that's caught trend maybe last year or so the uh high meat trend i don't know if you're familiar with that either yeah i don't know about that one give us a insight <laughs> this is a fairly rancid disgusting one and that's a good term <laughs> so um People, and it's big on YouTube and TikTok, they ferment meat that rots, and it creates a, uh, a euphoric, uh, a euphoric symptom of it. And it's become, and there's, there's people all who talk about it all the time, they eat rotten meat. One of the things that we see with some of our bigger predators, um, bears are pretty good at this, is they would prefer carrion. Sure. You know, given, given fresh meat or given rotting meat, a lot of these bears, and we've I've seen some great videos of uh, of bears in the Pacific West where they find whale carcasses and they just lose their minds. They roll around in it and they become utterly intoxicated with the rotting flesh. Well, sure, it's marinated. <laughs> it's marinated, yeah. So there's this rotting meat concept that, you know, unquestionably Bigfoot would is – you know, omnivorous and carrion would be a significant part of its diet. So does that contribute, you know, is there, is there part of this high meat factor that contributes to some of the inhibitions that allow the sightings to be present? I love it. I love that angle. That's a, that's, I, I love that perspective. And that could certainly in my mind, certainly be something that's feasible. And is, and, and like I said, between like the things like silage, things like rotten meat, um mad honey and even and even if you have bumper crops i mean you know it's um we've all kind of grabbed the the old apple and realized that it tastes a little funny because it's been sitting around instead of rotting it fermented uh-huh. so you know there's there's a lot of these factors that can add to this lack of inhibitions or, or lack of judgment especially if we're talking about juveniles sure. a lot of the sightings that we, see, we talk about you know we see only periodically the giant you know nine foot swatches uh-huh. But very often we see the seven to eight foot in this in the sightings, and people talk about, you know, maybe this was a juvenile. You know, it's only six feet tall or it's eight feet tall. Is that a juvenile? Right. And and that's the, a lack of judgment as well. And you know, in uh, in with juveniles, and juveniles are juveniles, whether it's humans, whether it's sasquatches, relic hominids, um, rhinoceros, or elephants, we find that juveniles, in lack of supervision of a bull tend mm-hmm. to act like idiots, you know, and uh, I was a 15-year-old boy. I was a tremendous idiot. So, um, and even in, and they show that even in the the, the parts of Africa that uh, they tend to have to import, import new bulls if the juveniles become a problem. This mm-hmm. is a, a standard animal behavior. So, you know, if, if these behaviors, if we try, kind of try to track the general animal behaviors, can we find some common threads that lead to these irresponsible behaviors that cause sightings. Oh, wow. You need to write a book, and I think we should title it The Irresponsible Bigfoot. (laughs) Right? Wow. Yeah, I mean, the responsible Bigfoot wouldn't be seen, and, you know, I think that's part of what we're, you know, what are the situations that cause the sightings? No, I think that would, I think that has credibility, and I think it's certainly something that, you know, could be looked into a little bit further. And oh my gosh, yeah, you know, put out some fermented apples, big old barrel of it. One time, I mean, I was 
I've, you know, just out on, on trips, I, I came across, I know what was a drunk raccoon. Yeah, he was in, you know, I think someone had put out some apples maybe for some deer bait, whatever the case was. And yeah, I come across this raccoon. He's just laying in it and rolling around and just acting all kinds of goofy. And he got up when I got fairly close. I thought he was injured and he was looking at me. He wasn't snarling or anything or, you know, getting aggressive the way a raccoon can. But yeah, he just laid back down. I swear he was laughing and just, you know, having a good old time. And yeah, he just looked at me kind of funny and laid back down. I thought this poor raccoon's been into the fermented apples here, I think. And so, yeah, yeah. I think you have some valid points when it comes to a Bigfoot, like you said, especially, you know, with a juvenile, a younger one. And yeah, you know, when they get home, they're getting in trouble by mom and dad won't be doing that out there with people are going to spot you. And oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when we see that behavior with dogs, we see it with everybody that the juveniles act irresponsibly. Sure. No, it makes sense to me that that's fascinating. So we, had, I'm sorry, we did a um, experiment. I had, we were making wine and I had a bad batch of wine that came out. It tasted horrible. So I dumped it out into the yard. Yeah. Um, forward a week or two later, all the bees had taken this wine and made and harvested the sugar from it and actually put it into their hive and it actually was this wine flavored honey. So I had talked to a couple of guys in my beekeeping club. I said, Hey, you know, this happened. They, they actually picked up the, the, the wine and, and use that. And so we took like three hives of, of our, uh, club area and we, that were separate and we actually, um, fed them wine. And come to find out, those hives failed. And, okay. and, and, and here they are with us. We're feeding them a surplus of food, and those three hives in, in three separate areas all failed. I wonder, you know, did, was it a metabolic problem or was this an alcohol related irresponsible, you know, not functioning along with alcohol? We never, you know, we only did the experiment once, but, uh, we thought, again, you know, the effects of, of alcohol on, you know, non-human animals, non-human uh, species, and you know, we use we use so we use it in. I'm a, I'm a paramedic and um, I've been paramedic for three years, but I also work. My uh, my current wife is a vet tech, so you know, the animal world and health world are are blended, and we help you know other things. But one of the things that we do, we take care of horses, and it's a fairly common practice. They're not a really a great one for their health, but um, if you can't get them to take some medicine. We usually whisk, we usually mix a little bit with whiskey and the horses drink it right up. Wow. So, yeah. If you can't get them to take medicine, we put a little bit of whiskey in there and they tend to gulp. Again, not good for them. It can make them colicky, but, you know, but it's, you know, ends to the mean. Yeah. So there's definitely interest. Not just, humans aren't the only ones who, who have this, you know, drive for, for those euphoric ingredients. Sure. And, you know, it's naturally happening out there all over the place. And, of course, they're going to wander into it. And if they are they get a little taste for it or, you know, they're smelling something in the air, they're going to haunt it out, it sounds like. So, gosh, this is a whole show in and of itself, I do I do believe. <laughs> well, I don't want to go too much. Like, if you like, I can get into my, my brief encounter. Yeah, that's where I was going to take you next. So, yeah, tell us about how your, your uh, outdoor lifestyle led you into what you – you you think is a, a Bigfoot encounter. I'd love to hear it. Go ahead. Sure. So, you know, I, I didn't put all the pieces together till later, which is kind of me. I'm, you know, kind of, I can be a meathead. So uh, we were, this was about 2017 and it was in the summer, um, fairly dry year. Um, me and a buddy of mine, we were going to go um, camping 
and then do some scouting for the upcoming hunting season. Here we go out. Buddy line has uh, 50 acres um, in Goshen, Connecticut, way up in Litchfield County. And adjacent to that, it's all wilderness. That's where where the Connecticut boundary starts to, to blend into Massachusetts, where, you know, there's no suburbia. It's all wood, you know, years of farming and, and that kind of thing. There's lots of roam, roam, roamed areas, and it's it's pretty sparse. Mm-hmm. So we go up there, we go hunting a couple times a year, and we usually make a camping event out of it. Um, we had gone up this particular weekend, and a lot of times when we go camping, we just we don't bring a tent. We just bring a sleeping bag and, you know, just crash by the fire, and that's about the most of it. So we get up there, and we have a trail camera at the center, and um, we met with a neighbor. He's like, listen, there's a moose that's here. It's kind of acting kind of kind of uh, aggressive, really protective of this water source. So if you see her, you might want to give her a little space. And we don't have a lot of moose in Connecticut. We have almost none. Um, you know, we get one or two accidents a year, maybe. But, you know, the moose is not really popular. And um, he said, oh, there's also, a, we got a, let me show you the trail cam. There was a bear here. And bears are becoming more, more and more popular in Connecticut, and I would be surprised if we don't have a, a, a selective bear season soon. So, okay, you know, it's we're, we've been hunting and, and camping, you know, it's just one of those things. You know, for most of us who, who go camping, you know, bears happen, but they don't, you know, it's not a not a, a real threat. Mm-hmm. Just focus on. I'm not in grizzly country either. So mm-hmm. we uh, hike halfway up the mountain that we're going to be going to, and we make a campsite, me and my buddy Seth, and... We uh we have a, a shooting range there too, so we had brought our our handguns. Um, I have restless leg that's off the chart. I don't sleep very well, um, so we start a fire. The bugs are crazy, and uh, he crashes out pretty quickly. Me, I'm up and I'm really uncomfortable. Couldn't get comfortable. Was nightmare flipping around. My legs were going nuts. Laying here by the fire, and um, out of nowhere comes this branch a small log about the size of, about the width of a maybe a baseball bat or a little bigger and uh flies right into our campsite and what was that you know and it really didn't connect like what so when it happened seth wakes up turns around and i said someone just threw something in our campsite and as i'm saying it you can hear these huge footsteps right on the outside of our vision that we can see from the fire and it was uh really aggressive stomping um so then shortly thereafter, another branch comes flying in. Um, so then next, it was, it was thrashing of trees. And I mean, just bashing of, of, of the foliage and everything and stopping. And then started this grunting or huffing. And I thought maybe, well, it's either the moose or the bear, you know. Um, and so listening to it, you know, it was pretty aggressive and would hit you kind of hard. Um, have you ever... Uh, experience true uh, infrasound? Uh, I have not. And it's interesting you bring that up. I have gone down the path of really studying that as best as I can. And I think that is something that seriously needs more attention. And um, it, I think it's a, an incredible uh, concept and something that hasn't been talked about a whole lot in the Bigfoot world. Um, but I'm certainly digging into that as best I can. And I know that there's known mammals out there, predators, that use infrasound, you know, to gain the upper hand, so to speak. And yeah, uh, I don't, so what do you think? I don't want to delve, well, I don't want to delve too far off of the, 
the yeah. story. I have to a small story sure. for that. We were doing I was with the I was a den leader, and uh, we were doing a camp overnight at the zoo. Um, we have one that's local here, and they have some big cats. They have some big tigers. So one of the girls who who's running the program who works for the zoo is actually a friend of mine. We worked in uh, SARS together with uh, she does canine rescue, uh, canine search and rescue. Um, and we were in the, in the group talking about how tigers don't give that roar that we that we tend to think of. They do this big, huge huff that really will hit you if you hit it hard. It's just right, but it's not the not the roar that starts from the beginning to end like like a lion. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay, we talk about it. Everybody goes goes to sleep, and we had the 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 walk of the zoo. So I was inside this other uh, carousel building, and I walked out. And the tigers are right next door. And all of a sudden, I get this hit. The tiger just this huge huff and roar that, I mean, shook me to my bones. It was I, I, it just now gives me goosebumps thinking about it. I'll never forget how and I couldn't. I mean, he was way beyond my vision. I couldn't see him. He was several exhibits down. And the the infrasound that I got from that, I will was blasted by it and I'll never forget it something you can never ever forget if you ever get hit by it so you know I'm I'm actually familiar with being hit with what I would consider infrasound sure uh, and so going back to the story mm-hmm. um, the huff that we got these big grunts was not the same it was um, more like a Instead of one huge, big roar, it were these little, <sighs> but you could feel it kind of hit you. Mm-hmm. And um, as Seth, my friend Seth gets up, we thought it was either the moose or the bear. Regardless of being kind of hit by these little tags of selling ultrasound, um, so we just started yelling back at it. But, you know, if it's a bear with a moose, we'll just scare it back off. Right. And as we do so, it we realized that we thought it was going around us in a circle, but there was on both sides of us. So, again, scared it off, and we started to settle down. It actually happened again to a smaller degree, but uh, we had a very similar thing where it came in stomping, thrashing, and we were able to to uh, just scare it off again. Again, we contributed it to a bear moose, you know, putting some logic to it. Right, right. And then, you know, it was until a month or so, possibly more later, that I started to think, wait a minute, moose and bear don't throw tree limbs into your campsite. <laughs> and so I'm putting these pieces together, and I'm like, you know what? I think that was a Bigfoot. And I'm kind of like, no way. I'm in Connecticut. There's, you know, I, there's, no. And then uh, I, the same amount of time, I had turned on uh, Finding Bigfoot, and there were two other, and they even mentioned there were two other sightings that month in Litchfield County. So um, I was pretty like pretty convinced they had a sighting and I had an encounter. So you add the two together, they weren't they were only I think 15 miles apart when I uh, checked it out on the map. Absolutely, oh. you know, and you know, and I haven't done my podcast outlining my, my experience, uh, which I'm going to do soon. Yeah, yeah, you briefed me. I really can't wait to hear it. Yeah, and so yeah, I'm gonna go through it. You know, I'm gonna 
explain exactly where I was. All, all, you know, and I had a, had a hiking buddy with me, and he didn't get a chance to, to go through what I went through. And again, I'll explain that. But mine was real similar to yours in terms of the sounds I heard, because I didn't actually see, but I dealt with this something for a good 30 minutes. But it was real similar sounds. And uh, this was in Montana in the Absorica Barefoot Wilderness. And real similar sounds. And I could feel these things. It was like getting hit with little hockey pucks of sound. It was. And That's the only way I could put it, like hockey pucks. I, I know that sounds like weird, but if if you could make sound into a, a a tangible item, it was like getting hit with little hockey pucks. No, I, I could associate with that, too. I played hockey. I was a goaltender for years and years and years. And that's a good way to put it. And, and yeah. And uh, so it was real interesting. But like I said, my whole thing lasted about a half an hour. And it was, you know, it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon in, in summer. And But, yeah, I'll get into those details down the road. But you, the way you described it was real similar to what I, what I went through. And so, yeah, that really got me thinking about infrasound. And if this can, you know, be a high caliber infrasound that it may be a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch or Yetis, what they can produce. I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole different level of, you know, a predator working. And you had this experience with a tiger and that's where I've mostly been focused on in terms of getting my research and my knowledge. And it's, it's incredible. Um, you know, visible weapon. I could never, again, I don't, I can't do it justice by explaining how it rattled me listening to this, just huge vocalization of a tiger. It was beyond, and I knew they were there. I expected them to be there. I knew I was safe, mm-hmm. but it was more than I can explain. Sure, sure. So this experience that you had with what you're, what you're thinking as a Bigfoot, this was late at night or like three in the morning. What, about what time? You know what? I, I wish I knew. I, I really don't. I have no scale of time. I would say it was at around midnight or so. Sure. Dark at least. Yeah, we had gotten there late, so you know, a couple mm-hmm. hours in. So it had to be between between eleven and two, I suppose, because it wasn't, you know, crescent to the morning. It was just a couple hours in the darkness, or you know, and again it's summer, so you know, it gets dark around nine. Yeah, with the branches that you're talking about, um, were you able to take a look at them in the daylight, like to see? No, we- I, you know, I didn't, again, at the time, I, the last thing I thought it would be was a Bigfoot. So I really just right. brushed it off to some some common pedestrian logic and, and moved on. Right. So, yeah, if you, you know, were in that same, you know, situation again, I'm, I'm sure you would kind of go through some different processes, you know, of observing and looking for prints, looking for the branches where they twisted off, where they broke off, how were they, you know, how big they were, taking pictures, all that kind of thing. So next time, now we know, right? You got to learn from mistakes. Oh yeah, be better for the next go around. Did you smell anything? No, I didn't. Okay. That was one of the ones I thought of. Also, I didn't smell anything. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, the 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 movement around was really odd. Thought there was more than one kind of thing, um, you know, or what, were they circling us? But it really was not overly aggressive. It was we're here. Uh, it didn't. It you know it wasn't like throwing rocks or you know they only threw a couple branches and nowhere's near us. Mm-hmm. So you know it wasn't. It didn't. It never seemed at all really scary. Just you know outward in the woods kind of inconvenient. Really yeah. wish I had had put more thought into it then. And you know I added the pieces up and it really wasn't until like I said I saw Finding Bigfoot and there was a sighting at the same basic time. 
Sure. No, that's, yeah, those, those parallels like that are important too. So that helps kind of lead you down a path. And now you're into a world just like just the same way I got into it is I got to know these answers or at least pursue trying to find these answers. And it's, it's fun, you know, because it is a mystery and maybe things will be solved one day. I, I enjoy the, the romance and the nostalgia of, of the, the, I want to believe in, in there and I want to, I want now, you know, in my second career, I want to, I want to jump into, I want to find, I want to go and look. Right. Do, do I need to find? I, that, I would say that that's so much farther off, but the, the finding of it isn't, it's like, you know, the journey is more important than the ending. I hear you. I hear you loud and clear. And I, and I agree. You know, I mean, if there was this absolute proof, you know, tomorrow, I mean, our whole world would so drastically change. And, you know, I don't know, but we want to see what that looks like. So that's always. Yeah, we lose the romance of being able to talk about things like this. And for right. lack of a better word, the, the, I use the word romance, but it's, this gives us this wonderful portion. You know, yeah. I'd hate to lose it. The mystery of it. It's like, it's like when you find out the, you know, the, the, the Disney characters are people inside. You know, I don't want to lose that. Sure. No, that makes sense. And, yeah, you're, you're spot on. The journey is more important by far. And, uh, yep, the romance of it is, is fantastic. And the mystery, I do love that. Uh, so yeah, well, I guess it's a, it's a wait and see kind of a thing, but it's, it's always fun to talk about. There's no question about it. So do you go out on trips to tell yourself, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to search for Bigfoot on this trip? My current situation, I'm trying to build it to that as a matter of fact. Um, you know, like I said, I'm in my second career. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working as a chef, which has always been a, a passion of mine. I'm, uh, I'm actually building out a school bus to live in. I'd like to do some traveling. And, um, what I really, one of the things I would like to focus on being able to do is I'd like to be able to, to take my bus, kind of chef my way around and, and do some researching like this. So it's kind of part of this big plan that I'm trying to work out that I can get myself, you know, kind of around the country a little bit traveling. You know, and I can, and I can do most other jobs, but I'd rather work, you know, at a, at a restaurant, do some guest chefing, which is not uncommon. You come in, you work for a couple of weeks and you, you know, move on. Um, and to support my, my travel as I do this, you know, research and, uh, and get out hiking and, and get into the woods a little bit. So that's part of this new process. I'm, I'm just starting to really put it together and building my, building my school bus and, uh, building my resume of cooking and hoping that I can kind of support my, my expeditions via, via that way. Sure. Absolutely. No, that, that's, I think that's fantastic. And, you know, you've got the experience enough now to, to get out there and do that. And yeah, being a chef, you know, that's a heck of a skill. So good for you. And, you know, taking the plunge down that path and keeping things outdoors. So I think more people should do it. And the people out there right now listening are people that do this, are looking to get into it. So the more discussion you, you can have, people are going to get comfortable, you know, taking the next step, one step at a time. So uh, that's fantastic and good for you. And, and uh, yeah, just keep on pursuing that for certain. Um, so what do you think uh, What do you think a Bigfoot is? Do you think it's a terrestrial animal? I mean, sometimes we hear it's a, it's a UFO connection. What, what are your thoughts? Oh, you know, I've, so I have a, a lot of experience in the paranormal as well. And you know, I have to say that I've never been able to connect those dots. I listen to a good handful of people who talk about it. And, and, of course, because it's so much of the unknown, I would never dilute any of their, their findings or their theories. Um, you know, I've listened to some great people 
talk about seeing portals and and seeing them come out or or you know tracks that have disappeared. I don't I don't have any of that experience to be able to talk about it. I I, I find it very interesting, but in truth, I have no way to connect the dots. So as it stands now, um, in my nerdology, I've been really looking back towards the relic hominids and making them a more flesh and blood terrestrial creature, just because I don't have the dots to connect. Sure. Or, you know, personally, I can't see them. Uh, I don't dilute them. I think it's a fascinating concept, and I don't question maybe they have a more spiritual uh, ability that we we actually have, you know, in, in every every genre. Christians have it. Buddhists have it. This ability to, to uh, manage time and space that we have, uh, you know, we are luminous beings, as Yoda put it. So, you know, I, I think it's a fantastic concept. I, I I only have other people's opinions to go on, and I can't attach any of my own dots. Um, like I said, I've, I've looked into the relic hominid concept I've been really battling because I really don't think, and even in this, I really can't connect even uh, Gigantopithecus to the Sasquatch. I'm really trying to, to manage that, and um, I don't want to go too well, I Maybe we just run that direction. Uh, sure. We start looking. Well, the same thing. I, I, I believe it's terrestrial. I have to, you know, bite that sandwich. And um, you're looking into Gigantopithecus, which only really, you know, they haven't extincted about only about 100,000 years ago. And what I find very odd, we talk about finding the bodies of Bigfoot. Where are the bodies? Where are the bodies? That's a big question. How come we don't find bones? We don't find skeletons. Um, you know, we can't find any of Gigantopithecus either. We find We find teeth. Uh, a couple portions of a little bit of jawbone, and I heard rumor that somebody has a part of a humerus. And I don't know if it's a distal section with a endocondyle or a, a fossa or anything of that nature to be able to mm-hmm. see any articulation. Um, I know that recently they've moved Gigantopithecus into the family of Pongo, which is more of uh, the orangutan than um, than our homo, you know, near closer to our chimpanzees or the bonobos or any of those. And that split, that split they think is about 5 million years ago. So until we have a partially intact skull with a, with a accessible frame and magnum or a, uh, a pelvis that we can, you know, assess a, a, a stand, a stand up tilt, we're never really going to have any of the answers of where to get to this really sense. You know, it goes from the upright ape to the large lowland gorilla to some people think it's maybe just a giant panda. You know, so I don't I don't see that particular strain of relic hominid connecting to the current Sasquatch. Um, I can't make the the dots connect from the way I look at it. Um, you know, so I wonder is it part of the the parallel of hominids that we have that go along with Lorenzis or the Diabesians or you know Cromagnon, Neanderthal. And those only go back around 500,000 years ago, mm-hmm. 50,000 years ago. Something you know, much more in contemporary world. But where does it where does it come into play? Mm-hmm. You know, they look at how they think Gigantopithecus became extinct, whether it was a uh, competitive extinction, whether it was a, a geographical or, or thermal extirpation. So we have all these other tiny facts, and you know, we can't connect these links that are within the last hundred thousand years. Yet we can connect a lot of links that are millions of years ago. Right. So when people say, you know, where where are these Sasquatch bones? Where are the bodies? I mean, we can't find them. We can't find our own skeletons, you know, that are only a hundred thousand years old. You know, let alone collecting any of the other links in the fossil record. 
Absolutely. No, that makes sense. And plus, if you're adding in the variable of, you know, maybe a much higher intelligence than your average bear, I, you know, they're going to be able to deal with their own to a certain extent. And uh, so, yeah, it's a it's a it's a long rabbit hole. And I I it's fun being in it and hearing different perspectives such as yours. And, you know, you've got such a wealth of knowledge. I think we could be here for three days talking about all this. I know we could. And so, yeah, um, so I want to be able to let let you go, uh, you know, so you can get back to your life. But I'd certainly want to invite you back and see if maybe we can talk some more a little bit and maybe go down that infrasound uh, channel a little bit more. If you're if you're interested, I'd be happy to have you back. I'm sure everybody would love to listen to more of what you have to say and some of your experiences. And then, of course, we got to hear the progress on the bus. So. <laughs> So yeah, I would love to come back. I would, I, I, I really enjoy this. I think, uh, you know, this has been a good conversation. You actually are quite the conversationalist, and this has been been fun. I, I'm really enjoying this, and you know, I don't ever have a a lack of things to talk about. Unfortunately, I, you know, my nerdology and and weirdness, um, you know, like I said, my friends will refer to me as the Renaissance man. My my wife calls me wonderfully weird. You got the right variable, <laughs> but you got to promise me next time when you do see this Bigfoot face to face when you're out and about, you got to call me first. Oh, yeah, believe me, you'll be one of the first. I, I, yeah, anybody who will believe me because, you know, you know, and it's, I would say that I don't suffer any of the, the, the side glances that a lot of people say that they, they, they suffer or uh, stereotypes of being a, a weirdo by believing in Bigfoot. And I, I'm, I'm really happy that, that mainstream has really kind of said, you know what? They're not really crazy. You know, the tinfoil hat has come off. Well, if, if, it takes crazy a little bit, you know, I guess in the sense of the, the term, I'm okay with that. And all things weird is acceptable to me because, you know, at one point, nobody knew what lightning was. And imagine seeing that and not knowing what it is. So, yeah. And, and, and again, things like, you know, maybe it's some of the benefits of the Internet. I, I hate to give it credit, but, you know, people have much more acceptance of things like paranormal, which, you know, I mean, are, are so many of us can can really talk about. Almost everybody now will will say, you know, I did have an experience I can't explain. And they're much more comfortable explaining it. And I think that's part of our job from, you know, culturally as a community of humans just to say, you know, I feel this and, you know, I'd like to know that you do too and you're okay, mm-hmm. regardless of what it's about, whether it's paranormal, whether it's Bigfoot. And now we see it with, with uh, you know, a, a, a new sexual culture, which I, whether you agree with or don't, but now it's it's able we're able to talk about it. And I think that's half the area of, of connecting is being able to communicate about it. Absolutely. And, and yeah, it's been a pleasure listening to you. And like I said, we'll have to do it again and, and talk a little bit more about some things. We'll drill down a little deeper and uh, kind of take it from there. But no, it's been great talking with you. I certainly appreciate it. Any, any final words you want to leave us with? Not specifically. I think we've run over some pretty good t- terrain and, uh, you know, I just, I want to get out and, uh, hopefully I can put all my dots together and, you know, get, uh, get moving across the country and my bus and, doing some hunting fishing and cooking and sass watching so you know i want to i need i need to need the next adventure and uh, that's what i'm kind of setting myself up for all right well we're going to put you on the short list mike because we got to talk again i know there's there's a lot more we could get into so well i greatly appreciate your time today i hope you get a little bit more rest and uh yeah let's keep in touch and and uh we'll, we'll schedule another time and, and and talk a little bit more well thank you so much for having me it was a great it was a great experience Anytime. Yeah, keep in touch. You've got my contact information, and uh, I've got yours. So I'd love to see some pictures of the bus one day if, if you're up for it. Okay. Not a, 
I've thought about going down that track myself, and so yeah, you kind of got me tingly a little bit about that. So, well, congratulations on all your successes, and uh, you know all your avenues, and wow, the bees, infrasound experience—that's fantastic. So, thanks again, Mike, and uh, we will talk to you soon. This has been Mike from Connecticut, the Renaissance Man. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate your time. Thanks, buddy. You bet. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.